So we are in this series, Love Walking Among Us, and I want to start with a question. And by the way, we're not going to start in John chapter 13. We're actually going to start in Luke uh, 22. So if you want to turn there to be able to follow along. But I want to start by asking this question. Have you ever noticed in the Gospels, the four Gospels, that the closer Jesus got to the cross, the, the disciples become more and more temperamental and hasty, and they begin to get anxious and tense, and they begin to actually initiate conflict among themselves and even conflict with Jesus. There's that iconic scene in Mark chapter 8, of course, where Peter throws down with Jesus and tells him he can't do what he, what he says he's come to do. And one of the things that we notice about these outbursts from the disciples is that every single one of them is about the disciples' power significance, status, and importance. All of these outbursts are rooted in their greatness and their understanding that they want to be great and they're trying to be great. They want to have the high position. And so this scene here that we're, we just looked at, uh, which we're going to get to, John chapter 13, is the night of the Lord's Supper. It's the last night before Jesus is portrayed. Uh, Luke also records some stuff from that night as well. Let me read in Luke. This is part of our uh, passage, uh, actually, for this morning. Uh, the, the title of, the, of, of our sermon today is Love Takes the Lower Place. So listen to what happens at the, at the uh, Lord's Supper in Luke 22. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, I'll explain that in a second, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is not the one reclining at the table? Is it not the one that reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus is flipping this on its head. So he says the greatest need to become as the youngest. Why not the greatest need to become as the least? Well, the youngest in their cultural context, the youngest is understood. It's a way of saying the greatest need to become as the least influential and the most marginalized people in culture. In our culture today, in other words, the greatest need to become as the unnoticed, as the uncool, and as those who are at the bottom of culture's organizational chart. I know that if you work, there's like an organizational chart at, at your work. Culture also has an organizational chart. No, nobody's necessarily written it down, but we all know where we fit in culture's organizational chart. And Jesus is saying is that to live a gospel-centered life, in gospel-centered service, in gospel-centered love, we need to be willing to go and take the lowest point of that cultural organizational chart. Now, what's amazing about this outburst with the disciples here is they've been with Jesus for three years. They've been listening to his teaching already for three years. And right before these four verses, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. He says, this is my body, which is going to be utterly destroyed for you. 
And then he says, this is my body, which is going to be poured out. I'm going to be emptied of my blood. This is going to be poured out for the remission of your sin, for the new covenant for you. He's describing what is about to happen, which is him taking part in, actually being the only one taking part in, the single most selfless act in the history of humanity. He just said, this is what's going to happen. And their response is to argue about who's going to be greatest. Uh, Talk about dull, amen? Isn't that amazing that they just don't get it? He's previewing the single most selfless act in in, in human history. And here's the other thing about it. Jesus is also showing that taking the lower place, going to the cross, is not void of power and authority. But rather, by going to the cross, Jesus shows that it is in power and authority that you and I are compelled to seek the lower place because it is in his power and authority, not in his weakness, that Jesus went to the cross. Jesus did not go to the cross out of weakness. He went out of power and authority. It's what compelled him to go there. It's what allowed him to go there. It's what led him to go there was the fact that he had power and authority. He did not go out of weakness. But again, the response of the disciples to this, it's the opposite of pouring oneself out. In fact, they were trying to figure out how to pour into self. That's their response. They argue about who's the greatest, who has position, who has eminence, who has honor, who has significance, who has status. Doesn't that sound like our world today? Doesn't it? And and in verse 25, Jesus says, you know, the Gentile rulers, they lord it over them and they call themselves benefactors. Those are are signs of arrogant, self-anointed importance, significance, and honor. It's people who are who are showering themselves with self-importance. He says that's what the Gentiles do because that's, that, that's the world's paradigm. And it's the opposite, though, of the values of the kingdom of God. That's what we have to understand. It's the complete opposite. So he's telling his disciples in verse 25, and he's telling you and me today, obviously, to quit buying into the world's notion of importance and greatness because that's not where importance and greatness lie. And he also says, don't buy into it because the world's paradigm of importance and greatness is actually perishing. And if you buy into that, you will perish along with the world. That's the reality of it. That's what he's teaching. It just reminds me of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. At the very beginning of chapter 12, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You heard Cody talking about patterns of living, patterns of worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Don't be conformed to the liturgy of this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what transforms the renewing of the mind is the gospel of Jesus Christ and our embracing of that. And so it's in this context, it's in this ethos, if you prefer that word, that Jesus then washes his disciples' feet. So let me just read that again, and we'll go through it, and then at the end, we're just going to apply, apply, and apply. So here it is. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Simon says, this is a problem in our culture, what you're doing, Jesus. I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus answered him and said, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So verse 1, we've talked about in several other messages already that Jesus is aware of this hour that's supposed to be his, but he keeps talking about it in previous messages as my hour has not yet come. And so he tries to withdraw from the people all the time because they want to make him king and he doesn't want to be king in their view of what a king is. Now he's saying, my hour has come. It is time for me to depart. Now, rather than withdrawing, I'm going to press in. I'm going to complete this mission. And then at the end of, the, of verse 1, it says that he has loved his people and then John adds this little clause. He loved them to the end. Here's what we can learn about gospel love just from that little clause at the end of that sentence. Genuine gospel-centered love finishes. It completes the task. Love doesn't stop when it gets difficult. And believe me, loving well is going to get difficult. It gets difficult. It always does. I would argue that serving and service is actually over-romanticized in our culture. Lots of people talk about serving. Very few do it, and if they do it, they don't do it for the long haul because that's when it gets hard. Love that finishes is really hard. And, and, and so here's what I can guarantee you about serving. When you become a true gospel-centered servant, one of the things that will happen to you, guaranteed, is that you will be insulted and offended, probably even by the very people you're serving. You will be criticized and humbled. Yeah, I know that you just spent your entire day off helping me move, but you didn't do it right. You put that bureau in the wrong place. Okay, you'll be criticized. You'll be offended. You will be insulted. And when that happens, the very first thing that you'll think, and sometimes you'll even say it out loud, but certainly you will think this, I don't deserve that. I'm serving. Well, welcome to the real world. That's just the way it works. One of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, used to say this all the time, and he's absolutely right about it. Everyone loves the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one. And believe me, we will all be treated like servants when we serve. That's part of the deal. That's a lousy deal. That's part of the deal. Okay? Here you go. Um, some of you play poker. You don't have to raise your hand. I know we're in church, but I know you know what this means. Okay, here you go. Love is in for the burn. You poker players say amen, okay? Liars, come on. <laughs> Love is in for the burn. That's not, by the way, that's not, I'm not referencing a political candidate. Please don't email me and say, I can't believe you got political there. Love is in for the burn. Love, in other words, love goes all the way to the top cost till you've emptied yourself of everything. Love finishes the race. Paul Miller in his book writes this, love is not a one-shot sortie into someone else's needs. Love gets involved. And then verse 2 is this, is this description of this constant epic battle between God and Satan, which Satan started, by the way. Satan started this battle, and God has won. And remember, if you and I are going to blame shift Everything that we do bad to Satan, which a lot of us have the tendency to do, you and I have to be consistent when we do that, which means that when we do something really well, we have to give credit to God. So here's what I'm calling us to today. 
No more of this. I sinned and I did something really bad. Satan is to blame. I did something really wonderful and really noteworthy. It was me. No more of that. That's inconsistency. Uh, In fact, research in the social sciences has a name for this. It's called the self-serving bias. When I do something great, it's me. When I do something bad, it was something else that made me do it that way. We're not going to do that uh, anymore. And then verse 3. John says that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from the Father and he was going back to the Father. Okay, Think about that. If you knew how everything was going to turn out, if you knew that you were going to be in glory, if you knew that you had all power and authority, here's what you and I would do. We'd use that to our advantage. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, it makes him go deeper into the commitment of the mission to go to the cross. That's significant. And so... He washes their feet, and there's three things I want us to really wrestle with about the foot washing. First of all, the washing of the feet in their context, first century Mediterranean culture, was a common courtesy done for guests that you had invited to your house for dinner. It was a common courtesy. In our culture today, uh, let's say you have a dinner, let's say January in Phoenix so that this works, Uh, you have people over for a dinner party to your house in January. You are going to take their coat and you're going to make a drink for them. You're going to offer to take their coat and make a drink for them, okay? It's the same thing. They just, they just did foot washing when people got there. And the reason was because their feet were really, really dirty. We need to understand this, okay? So the other thing about this foot washing is that the host never did the foot washing. In fact, what the host did was he found, here you go, talk about culture's organizational chart. He found the lowest non-Jewish slave in the household to do the foot washing. It was the worst task reserved for the person lowest on the organizational chart. It was awful. So by washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is actually living out his least is greatest teaching. He's not just teaching it, he's also applying it and living it out and demonstrating it. And in the midst of that, he also demonstrates that the gospel is for all people, not just the Jews. It's for everybody. He, and, and, and it just reiterates, and he lives out, God's call to the Jews to be a light to the nation. That's what he's doing. He's being Old Testament Jesus right here. Second of all, Jesus did not pick and choose whose feet to wash. So many of us want to pick and choose who we're going to serve. Okay, he didn't pick and choose. He again demonstrates and lives out his love your enemies teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. He washes Judas's feet. He knows Judas is about to betray him. Judas is about to sell him out. And yet Jesus washes Judas's feet as well as the others. Here's the third thing. Consider the condition of the feet in that historical context. Those feet were really, really messed up, okay? They had no paved roads, and if they wore shoes, if they were fortunate enough to have shoes, they would wear open shoes. They didn't have closed-up shoes. Even even in the military, they had open shoes, which I've always thought was kind of weird, okay? Uh, But they had open shoes, and then the, the, the streets were not only dusty and dirty and muddy, but they were also filled with animal and human waste, excrement and urine, absolutely filled. So by the time you went all day living your life in the city, in the town, and and then you got to dinner that night, your foot was caked with all of this gunk, okay? So 
That's what their feet looked like when Jesus washed them. You know, today it's very stylish. I've done, participated in these as well. It's very stylish today to have a foot washing service where you have people come up and you wash their feet during a service. Okay, understand that we're, we're, we're in cars with upholstery and we're walking around on concrete in socks and in closed up shoes. Washing feet today was nothing like what Jesus was doing at that time. And also consider this. Their foot gunk is symbolic of our sin gunk, which has been built up over our entire lives, living for self, layer upon layer. So symbolically, Jesus washes away that sin gunk with the foot washing. But in reality, Jesus washes away that sin gunk by going to the cross. So this is a powerful lesson, not only in love and service, but it's also perhaps even a bigger lesson in humility because it took great humility to do that. So a couple things about humility. First of all, humility is rarely something that is lived out simply by absorbing good teaching about humility, but rather it's lived out as a result of experience. Think about Paul. Paul didn't live for Jesus until he was knocked off his colt and confronted with with his, his deprivation. Peter was the same way. He didn't become the Peter of, of the book of Acts until he was humbled at the end of the Gospels. Jesus was even in that same boat, which we'll talk about in a minute when we read from Philippians chapter 2. They all experienced humility. Second of all, humility is not a path to greatness. Humility is greatness. It's not a path to greatness. It is greatness. That's the way the kingdom of God sees humility. In other words, true humility should never be leveraged for an agenda. An agenda. Why did I say agenda? Okay, we're going to have to use the recording from the third service today. So true humility is not to be leveraged for an agenda. I heard a, a, a saying this last week. Um, the gift should never exalt the gift giver. You ever heard that? That's How many times have you been given a gift and you know that really the gift that's being given to you isn't about you? It's about the exaltation of the person giving the gift. Notice I asked the question that way instead of saying, how many times have you given a gift so that you would be exalted? I haven't done this in a long, long time, and so since I have the microphone, you're going to have to suffer through this. Okay, I have not had a Godfather illustration for a really long time, but here it comes. In Godfather chapter 2, during one of the flashback scenes, the young Vito Corleone is trying to figure out what to do with the mafia head of their Italian neighborhood in New York. His name is Finucci. How many of you remember Finucci? Yeah, the guy with the white suit. They called him the black hand. You didn't want to cross Finucci, and Vito Corleone's trying to figure out what to do with this guy. There's this iconic scene when they're having this uh, very large Italian-slash-Catholic festival in the streets, and everybody's out there. There's music, there's dancing, there's all this stuff, and one of the things they do traditionally is they will carry a cross through the streets, and as they do that, people will attach money to the cross, which is supposed to go to the Catholic Church. So Finucci gets out some money, and he walks up to the cross, and everybody in the neighborhood stops and watches as Finucci does that. And he attaches the money to the cross, and as soon as he does it, he turns around and he does this. And people start to clap for him. Yay, yay, Finucci. Okay? 
Well, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Very specifically, the gospel teaching is that you're not supposed to let your left hand know what the right hand is doing. In other words, you're not supposed to exalt yourself through giving and serving. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of how humble I am. That's a problem. You see how that works? But we do that all the time. We, we do these little signals where we, we, we signal how humble we are. I, wonder, I hope everybody saw how humble I am in the midst of that. So we need to remember that someone who is serving is not necessarily a servant. Many people serve for their own exaltation. They serve for reasons that are not gospel-centered or other-centered. In other words, they're just doing it as a pose. And then a word about verse 7, and then we'll get some application. Jesus answered uh, Peter, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. How often has that happened in the Gospels? It's happened a lot. The disciples don't get it, but they will later. Here's why. The resurrection will clarify everything. But think about our lives. How many of us, myself included, in the middle of something really hard, we begin to demand answers from God and believe that when he doesn't give us an answer and he doesn't give us clarity, he's being capricious and malicious when he withholds that clarity. But then later on, after it's all over, he gives us clarity about what happened. Okay, part of the reason that he does that is because if he gives us clarity in the midst of it, it's no longer faith. And he calls us to walk in faith. Also, part of the reason he does that is if he gives us clarity in the midst of the hard stuff, it doesn't teach us the way it needs to teach us either. In a sense, it makes it easier for us to live the gospel life. And James says that we are to test the gospel against this, these, these tribulations, test the reality of our faith. Uh, you, you see, God calls us to faith and trust and belief. He calls us to patience and hope and the expectation of, of something good happening even in the midst of hardship and tension. He, and he doesn't call us to something that anyone could do without, without ever thinking about it. That's another problem. We just want to do stuff without thinking about it. But genuine gospel love takes thinking. Genuine service takes thinking. Genuine discipleship takes thinking. It takes wisdom. It takes patience. It takes all of these things. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and dig in. And think of the other areas where God has the same principle. Matthew 5, for instance. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Anybody can do that. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Even the worst people, the tax collectors, love those who love them. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? We have to think about love. Love is in part discipline. Here's another place where this goes on as well. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I've become a Christian. I don't understand why bad things still happen to me. I don't understand why I have to go through this fiery trial. I'm surprised by this. Peter says, don't be surprised because that's what's going to happen. Instead, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. If you're suffering because you're a sinner, you deserve it, man. Don't suffer because you're a sinner. Instead, suffer the, the, the gospel-centered way. Suffer because you're a follower of Christ. 
Um, and then in verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So Peter says it takes great faith to suffer, but, but, and it takes thinking, but that's what we're supposed to be doing. It takes wisdom and, and, and uh, discipline. So here you go. Genuine love has way more to do with serving than significance. Are we getting that? Genuine love has way more to do with serving than with significance. And by the way, let me just say, this includes marriage. Those of us who are married need to really get a hold of this notion. In fact, if your marriage doesn't embrace this symbol, this, this um, principle from both spouses, if you both don't embrace it, your marriage is going to suffer. Uh, when, Thursday night I was in a meeting, and I heard this for the first I'd never heard this before. I heard it for the first time. I said, that's gold. I'm going to take it and use it. And I'm not going to give anybody credit for it. But here it is. A good marriage is two funerals and a wedding. Now think about that. A good marriage is two people dying to themselves, burying them in the gospel, and then getting married. That's what a good marriage looks like, okay? Um, when I was at Fuller Seminary, um, I, I, I got to take a class from a guy named David Augsburger, who's written many books, and he's an incredible scholar, really great guy. His most iconic book, one that's become a classic, is called The Freedom of Forgiveness. And in that book, he talks about how couples and friends, but couples primarily, will get into what he calls negative spirals of downward reactivity. You don't have to shake your head. Have you experienced this? Negative spirals of downward reactivity. So you, you both get home from work, a little bit tired. One of you, for whatever reason, one of you kind of finds a little tiny small hand grenade, pull the pin, you lob it over. This is all metaphorical, I hope you understand. <laughs> so the spouse says, oh yeah, they go and find a little bigger grenade, pull the pin, lob it right back, okay? Then you go and find a really big grenade, pull the pin, lob it back. Then you go out to the garage where you keep the tank and you bribe the tank in, okay? And it just keeps going back and forth, back and forth. And he says, somebody, somebody has to do the hard work of dying to themselves, eating the offense, and starting the positive upward spirals of reactivity. Somebody has to do that. That's really hard. Somebody has to die, okay? And I get this all the time. I know I, 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 I've heard this question so many times when I teach something like this. But Frank, if I take the lower place all the time, won't I get taken, adva taken advantage of? And here's the answer. Yes, <laughs> you will get taken advantage of. They took advantage of Jesus. He's not calling us to do anything that he hasn't already done. In fact, that's what Paul writes about in Philippians. Here you go. Philippians 2, 3 and following. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vanity is how some people translate this. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. And then he says, the way you do this is to have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same outlook on life the way Jesus does. Look, through the look at the world through the lens of Jesus. Who? And then he uses Jesus as his sermon illustration. He says, who? Though he was in the form of God, he's God, he didn't count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. 
He didn't say, I'm just going to stay up here and reign. I'm actually going to serve. But verse 7, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, the worst possible way that anybody could die. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the guy that wrote the book that is a resource for this series, Love Walked Among Us, Paul Miller, has also written uh, a bunch of other stuff about what he calls the J-curve. Has anybody heard of the J-curve? Okay. He's talking about Philippians 2 here. You start up here, and this is what life looks like. You have to die before you are exalted. If a, if, if, if a seed does not fall to the ground and die, it cannot grow. That's the J. Isn't that nice that it's a J for Jesus? Okay. Um, a, a Christian author uh, several decades ago wrote it this way. He wrote a book uh, called Descending into Greatness, and it was a book that was specifically about Philippians chapter 2. That's the life of the gospel-centered person. It's, it's the route to life, the path to life is through death. It's through self-denial. We're going to talk more about the J-curve in coming uh, weeks. And what we get from this is, again, humility is rarely learned by simply absorbing teaching. Rather, it is lived as the result of experience. One pastor says it this way, you may not like God's methodology, but you cannot deny that Jesus took his own medicine. So the foot washing shows the depths to which genuine love will go, and yet it's still not quite the lowest. The truly lowest place ever, even lower than foot washing, is the cross, and Jesus was up for that mission. So I want you to think about some things here. Here you go. First of all, think about this. You look through Jesus' teaching and the way he lived his life, and you begin to understand that Jesus understands the power and influence of small things. He, he talks about salt and seed and leaven and prayer and solitude and quiet and stillness. He talks about simple acts of service. He talks about washing feet. Maybe it's caring for an elderly relative, taking the lower place, small things. Our problem is, is that we live in a culture that exalts the big things and the loud things. The and, and we believe in the influence and the importance of the big things. So we want the astounding and the grand and the impressive and the urgent and the attention-getting. We want to serve only when it comes with public accolades. We want to take the place of eminence and status. But here's the thing we need to understand. True discipleship is not in the grand, it's in the grind. True discipleship is not in the grand, it's in the grind. When we are called into this gospel relationship, we are called into the trenches because that's where the action is. Um, somebody from our congregation was invited to and attended the preaching collective a couple weeks ago when we were preparing for this. And he's a, he's a friend and really smart guy. It's Paul Tyson. And, and when we left, he texted me this, and this is pure gold. This is, by the way, the value of the preaching collective, getting input from other people. This is pure gold. He texted me this. What I discovered from the preaching collective today is that we are not being formed as much as we are being reduced. God already sees us as sanctified. 
though we are still living in a fallen world as fallen people. That is the beauty of the gospel, that though we are sinners, in Christ, God sees us now as righteous. That is our positionality in Christ, but he is also working on us being reduced. Some people call it being formed, but it's more of a reducing. Think of John's, he must increase and I must decrease. In order to be formed, we must first be reduced. In order to live, we must first die. In order to be humble, we must first be humbled. And that's gold right there. It is truly sad how many people want to be disciples, but they want to be easy bake or microwave disciples. They don't really get it. They pursue mountaintop discipleship, and if they can't have it right now with no work, no grind, and no humbling, they're not interested. And I think of Tom here, Tom Schrader, who's passed, one of our founding um, pastors. And the reason I think of him is because he says something that I know is hard, and it's counterintuitive, but it's one of his most iconic sayings. He used to say this all the time. Here you go. Some of you know it. What you know trumps what you feel. What you know trumps what you feel. It's one of the reasons that reading and studying Scripture and being in community is so important because it points us to knowing God and knowing His, his promises and His character, especially in the midst of suffering. And I will tell you, few people suffered as much as Tom did the last 14 years of his life. Nobody would want to go through the last 14 years of Tom's life with the, the things that he went through. And yet, through that whole time, all Tom talked about was how God was never going to leave him or forsake him and how God's grace is sufficient in his weakness. That's all he talked about. He was a true disciple. What you know trumps what you feel. Paul Miller in his book puts it this way. Our culture makes feelings absolute. Because I feel this way, I must act on it. But to be constantly swept along by your feelings is a form of bondage. We enter a prison of our own making. Journalist David Brooks agrees. Journalist David Brooks writes this, We have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. From a culture that encouraged people to think humbly of themselves to a culture that encourages people to see themselves as the center of the universe. You see, genuine love is not something that we give in order to get. It's something that we nurture and grow by loving others. Something we nurture and grow by loving others. And that takes time, that takes perseverance, it takes patience, it takes wisdom, and it takes discipline. And if you want to know where we get the power to be able to do that, we get it from the resurrected Christ and the filling of his Holy Spirit. That's the gospel. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. We know this is, man, this is tough teaching today, and it may have shifted our paradigms some, but that's a good thing because we really want to have hearts that, that despair and are anxious for the things that your heart is despairing of and anxious for. Um, help us to do that. Help us to have the mind of Christ, to see the world as Christ sees it, and then to act in that way. Uh, let us be people who believe in true discipleship, true love, and true serving. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.